Welcome to the Date Book Podcast. I'm your host, theater critic Lily Janik. When Lauren Mayer recently emailed me to introduce herself, a lot about her career intrigued me. This San Mateo-based artist has a political cabaret coming up at Feinstein's at the Nico on November 8th. She writes and directs for Stanford's Sexual Harassment Prevention Office, which uses theater to train its employees. And she's a music director at SF's Conservatory of Music. But I think what made me think she would be a great interviewee for the Chronicles The Artist's Life series is this little tidbit. She's written, performed, and posted a new satirical song about politics or current events every week since 2012. Here's an excerpt from one of them, the song that went the most viral. The news is full of sexual misconduct and harassment, and what to do consumes each institution. But instead of trying to analyze what each remark or pass meant, there just might be an easier solution. You could do a lot of training and encourage more complaining. Or you could hire and promote more women. Make everybody in the joint sit through an hour-long PowerPoint. Or hire and promote more women. So welcome, Lauren. Thank you, Lily. So I wanted to um, start by just reading some of the titles of your parodies, though actually the ones you singled out to send to me. Um, there's the sexual harassment prevention song, and there is, I didn't come from your rib, you came from my vagina. Um, <laughs> and... First, I guess I'd love to hear how you got started writing parodies. Well, I've been writing songs since I was eight or nine. Um, and actually, I will, on this podcast, do the very first song I ever wrote. I yes. played in a talent show. I was a classical piano student. And my girlfriends asked if I would play for them in the sixth grade talent show. And you obliged. And I obliged, but I'd never seen popular music. And it was, this is, <laughs> I'm aging myself. It was the sheet music for Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. <laughs> and they had a list of songs on the back that were also available from the same publisher. And one of the t titles was I Left My Heart in San Francisco, oh. which I'd never heard of because I didn't, I grew up in Southern California. Oh, okay. And I thought, that's a weird title. So I wrote this, just a little, I left my heart in San Francisco. I left my lungs in Waikiki. I left my legs in old New Mexico. And now there's nothing left of me. Da -dum -dum. So I wrote that when I was 10. I and love I it. just got, and then my parents got some Tom Lehrer records. Mm. And then I was hooked. So I've been writing stuff ever since. But I started doing the more political stuff in 2012. Um, before that, I was writing comedy. One of my big hits um, way back in the day was Married, Neurotic, or Gay, as in all <laughs> the men are. Um, and then I did stuff about being a mom when my kids were little, like Hormone Hell, about going through my, my menopause when my kids are going through puberty. So everybody was hormonal in my house. So I did that. <laughs> And then I started the politics in 2012, because that's really when things just started going nuts. So I've been doing a song a week since 2012. Now, but wh why a week? And I have to say that really is what intrigued me when you introduced yourself to me over email is like the discipline and the rigor and the commitment of that. Well, I didn't intend it that way. Mm. I... 
I had submitted my very first song, which was It's a Scary Time to Be a Jewish Mother, just about, you know, I'm a woman and I'm Jewish. It's like I'm doubly cursed. And I sent it to a now non-existent um, website that did political commentary, and and they liked it. And they said, do you have any more? And I jokingly said, sure, how about one a week? And they said, fine. So I thought, well, let me try. And Wait, what was the website? Uh, the... I actually don't even remember because it only was there for about a year, but I, by that point I'd gotten going with them. And I remembered I had, as a kid, gotten to go see Ray Bradbury talk because at hmm. one point I grew up in Irvine and he was lecturing at a school near there. And when somebody said, do you have any advice for writers? And he said, write. Write Ooh. every day, even if it's garbage, just write. And... I will say, I mean, I've been writing songs for a long time, but this is the first time I've made myself do it regularly, and a lot of my songs were garbage. But it took the pressure off, because if I'm doing it once a week, I'm not going to be writing brilliant songs every week. And as a result, my writing has gotten so much faster, and hmm. I, it's been, I mean, that's what I, anybody who wants to do anything creative, I always tell them, just do it and give yourself permission to write garbage. Because then it frees you up from that perfectionist thing that gives you writer's blocks. So I've, you know, and so there are writing exercises with, you know, teachers. You have to write five pages a day or paint a picture a day or whatever it is. It gets you out of that, yeah, I'm not going to do this right. So, and then sometimes I rewrite them and sometimes things I come up with, you know, they're, they end up, the, um, I didn't come from your rib, you came from my vagina, that basically wrote itself in about an hour. <laughs> because I mean, once you have that premise, yeah. like... I didn't create the title. I was... Mm. Actually, this was before... Once the 2016 election started, there was no shortage of material, let's just say. But before that, sometimes there was, you know, when there wasn't a national election going on, what am I going to write about? But it, there was some state that was closing another Planned Parenthood clinic, and I saw wow. a picture of a protest. Hmm. And one of the women at the protest had a sign with that phrase on it. I thought, well, that's just screaming to be a song. So sometimes I get my titles just from looking at protest signs. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, where does your inspiration come from? But it sounds like just everything. Yeah, I mean, I read a lot of newspaper coverage of, you know, current events. Um, sometimes somebody will suggest something like, oh, Ooh. have you done a song? As a matter of fact, I'll, this is um, one, I don't know, I don't think it was one of the titles, but one of my songs is I'm a Jew and I know that ain't Christian. <laughs> I don't know. I love country music and it's fun. And I had a job over the summer subbing at a Catholic church where my husband is the cantor, which my family found very confusing. He's Catholic. He's a cantor. I mean, but that's what they call the lead singer. And so I was subbing for the pianist and playing these Catholic church services. And there's a part of me that's like, what am I doing here? You know, I'm playing these Catholic services. There's some stuff I'm not, it's not my tradition. They're a very open church and the community there is lovely. And I was chatting with one of the parishioners and this is right after the whole border crisis started and they were taking kids away from their parents and he said, what are you going to do about that? you got to write a song about that. And I thought, I don't know how to make that funny. I'm just a Jew playing Catholic church services. Oh, okay, there I go. <laughs> so that kind of, that did that for me. So sometimes it's just looking at what I want to comment on. Sometimes somebody will suggest something. Sometimes I'll see a sign. Um, sometimes I will be, um, it's kind of embarrassing. Sometimes I will see somebody else who does a really good song and think, can I top that? 
Yeah. Or can I Why cover not? it in a different way? Well, and the sexual harassment one, which mm. is probably my biggest viral hit, that was because I performed at a benefit with Sandy and Richard Bacardi, who I'm going to be at Feinstein's with, and then a local writer named Roy Zimmerman, who, if you're not familiar with, you should look up. He's kind of like the Woody Guthrie of contemporary music. He's this lanky singer-songwriter, and he this is all he does is topical comedy, political comedy songs. And he did a couple of songs that had a, at this benefit, it's the first time I'd met him, where they had a timeless quality, so it wasn't just tied to the event of the week that would be old news. And so that was, after seeing him, I thought, I want to write something about a current issue, but that has a timeless quality. Hmm. And that's when I came up with the sexual harassment song. This was right when the Me Too stuff was starting last year. Gotcha. But I have to admit, I thought, well, this won't be timeless. It will only last a couple of months, and then everything will all be fixed, and we won't have any more Me Too. Well, that didn't happen. So you, now, you really thought it would all be fixed? No, I was kind of... But I didn't think the song would be as timely yeah. as it still is. No, I didn't think it would all be fixed. So... Have you been surprised by which of your songs have gone viral? Or does it, like, make sense to you? Um, after the fact, it does. I will yeah. say the sexual harassment song I wrote so quickly. And I don't know, most of my videos now, I pre-record the song and I lip sync, which is my dirty little secret. But they sound Ooh, better. so dirty. <laughs> they sound a lot better. When I'm trying to sing and play the piano and film and in my mind I'm rewriting the lyrics as I'm singing it's not a great combination <laughs> so I tend to the ones I really think are going to go somewhere I will spend a little more time that one I was in the middle of playing two different you know, music directing two different shows and I had no time and I threw that one together really quickly mm. and then didn't even you know often I do the thing of you know checking um, my my view count, you know, a couple times a day, and I, you know, oh, it's up to a few more views. I didn't even look at that one for a week, so that one really caught me by surprise. I just didn't think it would catch on. I didn't think it was that funny, and but I didn't realize I'd hit a nerve. So, and how many views is it at now, approximately? Well, and I I'm doing more on Facebook than yeah. YouTube because YouTube has changed how they. Oh yeah, I used to make a little money on YouTube. I'm you have to have millions of views now. Facebook, at least I can get people on my mailing list, and so it's a little bit more useful. It's 2.8 million. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know. Like I was telling somebody, I'm not exactly threatening to Taylor Swift, but that's pretty awesome. <laughs> the rib vagina one on YouTube got up to like 200,000, which for me was huge. And yeah. those are probably the biggest. Um, and then anytime I mention feminism, I did one called Then You're a Feminist based on an, episode, an essay by Catelyn Moran, who's a British writer. Ooh, tell me about that song. <laughs> I don't, I, it's, the first line is, if you have a vagina and if you want to be the boss of it, then you're a feminist. Because that's, that's her line. She would say, if you own a vagina and you want to control it, you're a feminist. And I love that. I, I had a college professor who said, if you're a woman and you respect yourself, you're a feminist. But I, this, this is a little bit a, a more punchier yeah. version of that. But I, because there, there are all the, and a lot of women your generation who are like, we don't need feminism. I, we're done. And it's like, I remember before Roe v. Wade, don't, don't take it for granted. So, um, and that was the first time I got discovered by the alt-right guys. Oh, what happened then? Well, first of all, my view count went on. That one went from like, you know, I usually get a few hundred. Sure. That one went to like 40,000 on YouTube and a, you know, maybe it was over 100,000 on YouTube and like 
several thousand on Facebook. The comments were horrible, yeah, but yeah. it upped my view. Oh, they were awful, but they can't spell. <laughs> so I actually wrote about, so that actually, I wrote about, like my husband saw the comments and he was like, should we be worried about this? And I said, I think, first of all, they're showing off for each other. But looking at their comments, the only thing to which they pose a serious threat is the English language. Oh, man, that's so good. <laughs> so I wrote Dear Internet Trolls, which is this chirpy song. Um, I've been listening to some Ingrid Michelson, if you're familiar with her. She does cute little ukulele songs, and they're very cute and fun. So I kind of was, oh, let's do something cute and fun about my Internet trolls. So I just wrote them a song thanking them for upping my view count. <laughs> so. Oh, man, I hope to have the same healthy mental relationship with my trolls that you have. Are you getting trolls? Do you get trolls you as know, a critic? You know, troll, it's like being a woman on the Internet, you know? Yeah. It's like part of the territory. Yeah, it is. And if you, I don't want to not read comments because most of them are lovely. Mm -hmm. And I, I grew up in Orange County. I used to tell people it's like the red state in Cal, the red, <laughs> yeah, it's the red state in the middle of California. And my high school classmates don't agree with me. A lot of them don't agree with me politically, but they'll say things like, you're wrong, but the song was cute. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you liberals don't understand economics but the puppet was cute or whatever I put in the video. So I don't, and I even don't mind people disagreeing with me civilly. It's when they get, you know, some, I mean, violent, awful stuff. I feel but, exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. But at a certain point, they're not, I mean, they're really not threatening you. They're showing off for each other. Hmm. And once I, I, like these poor, like if I have a line in the, the Trolls song if what I create makes you hate and deplore it, you know you could always just ignore it, you know, basically. Yeah. So it is a sign that you're touching, you're, you're hitting a nerve. Hmm. And I said it also kind of makes me feel a little bit famous. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and what's the harm in that? Exactly. <laughs> and see, maybe you'll be able to write something. I'll tell you, my Internet Troll song went over really well because younger people like it, too, because yeah. that's a big thing with all the Gamergate and everything else. Sure, sure. So, yeah, maybe you'll write some sort of interesting revenge piece. <laughs> You know, no promises. So I love that you were saying that doing this once a week makes you a better writer yeah. and like more fluid and like you can tap into your creative process more quickly. But like, what what do you get out of it? Like, what is the special joy of doing oh a parody? Oh my gosh. Um, well, first of all, I, I'm, I'm a songwriter. That's what I love doing. It's not how I make my primary living, but I love it. It's my thing. Um, it's how I express myself. It's lately it has been how I have channeled my frustration with current events. Yeah. I mean, as things just deteriorate politically, I keep going, I can't believe this. And I, a lot of my friends who are similarly liberally oriented can't even watch the news. They get too angry. And this gives me something constructive to do with it. And I hear all the time uh. from people, I was so upset and you helped me laugh at the news and now I can deal with it. And I know for me, when I am... I can't handle this. I'm so angry. If I can laugh, then it takes the edge off. And yeah. so hearing that I do that for people is just, you know, I'm not curing cancer. I'm not endowing some great thing like Bill Gates and, you know, doing all these wonderful things. I can't do that. This is what I can do to try to make the world a little better. Not to sound too Pollyanna-ish, but no, it's not at a all. really... 
I remember when I was in, I lived in New York after college, and my roommate at the time was um, getting her master's in social work in pediatric oncology. I mean, talk about a depressing area and very important Oof. work. Yeah, yeah. And she and her friends came to see me, and it was the first time I publicly had sung Married, Neurotic, or Gay <laughs> in this divey little, you know, open mic in New York. And they were really nice about it. And afterwards, she said, my, you know, my roommates, my friends from school really liked you. And I said, I feel really embarrassed because here you guys are helping parents deal with kids with cancer. And it's so important. And I'm making up silly songs about dating. And she said she couldn't do the work she does if somebody if she didn't have a way to laugh occasionally. So I thought, well, maybe that is, you know, we all do what we f- can do. And that's what I can do is make people laugh. I have a good buddy from college who's a doctor, and I often feel like, oh, my my work as a theater critic, you know, I'm in awe of her. And she said something to me once that I, I've taken to heart, and that, that is, uh, doctors, we save life, but the arts make life worth living. That's wonderful. Yeah. I love that. And exactly, and... My dad used to say what separates us from animals is our ability to appreciate beauty and art. And I add in laughter there. Mm. And Mm -hmm. I I mean, I did think about going into politics. I actually started in college as a political science major. I was a high school debater. And that's what you're all supposed to do. Well, you are an excellent talker. Oh, thank you. you. I I can see why, like, people were steering you that way or you, you... you were steering yourself that way? Well, I'm pulling, I mean, I'm very, you know, I mean, I remember my dad making us stay home to watch the Watergate hearings. I was kind mm-hmm. of raised on politics. But I realized I don't have a thick enough skin to actually be in politics. So this is a way of kind of staying involved without having to put my, you know, I, I don't think I could deal with trying to raise money to run for things. So, yeah, it's a way of kind of staying involved in it. So. Right on. So. When you sent me the sexual harassment prevention song, but then you also mentioned that you work for Stanford in their sexual harassment prevention office, I was wondering if the two were connected at all. They actually weren't. I don't work in the office. I have a contract oh, with them. I, I see. do. So what I do for them is they, they, like most universities, every two years, their supervisory staff and faculty have to go through mandatory training which most universities do either online or with some expert with a PowerPoint. And Stanford for the past, I don't know, eight years, has brought in different companies to do theater-based live sessions to make it more compelling and more interesting because it's based on scenarios being acted out by actors. I wrote the song while I was doing this for them. I guess it was on my mind, but I'd already had the contract. I write the program not the experts from Stanford who come and talk about the policy, but I write mm-hmm. this, the scenes that the actors do, and I hire local actors and direct it, and then I'm the facilitator, so I introduce each new speaker. And it's so I've learned a lot about the subject just researching to do the script writing. What do you think a lot of people who like think they're pretty hip, who know the issues, might not actually know about sexual harassment? Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot I didn't know. I mean, first of all, what I didn't know is, although we're finding out a little bit, and actually Dr. Ford did some of that, just how long-lasting the effects of Mm, harassment mm -hmm. and assault could be. Yeah. Um, How many, there's, nationally, there's 17 protected characteristics. Um, There's one of the experts last time, I love this point, she said, 
everybody in this room is either in a protected category or will be because one of the protected categories is age. And so we're all going to be potential victims of harassment, even cisgender, white, you know, Protestant men will at some point be possible age discrimination victims. So protected categories are groups of people who could be harassed? Right. So on the basis of age, gender identity, uh, gender, sexual orientation, nationality, race, religion. There's a whole bunch of things. And, of course, we know all by this point. I mean, it's funny. My first husband went to one of the very first trainings. This is back in the late 80s. I guess Mm -hmm. I wasn't married to him yet. And he went to a training where somebody really did get up in front of a group and say, in all seriousness, touching a coworker's posterior without permission could be construed as harassment. Oh, my God. You know, and in those days, that's kind of what the now people know you can't tell a coworker sleep with me or you don't get a promotion or a good grade. But there's all these grayer areas. What about consensual relationships where there's a power differential but not extreme Or what about, can you joke with people? And one of the big things I learned is there is a difference between harassment and just being a jerk. (laughs) And and then there's a difference between being a jerk and creating a hostile work environment that might not be harassment, but just makes things uncomfortable. But it's, you know, there are also people who are just unpleasant and that's not necessarily actionable. Right. So it's been fascinating. So we can't take care of all the jerks out there, huh? Mm -mm. Okay. Well... Well, and it's part of a broader cultural issue. You know, I mean, we have a culture that's, you know, women are still valued for their appearance in ways that men aren't. Women are still conditioned not to speak up as much and to try to be accommodating. You know, if a woman cries in public, she's considered weak. If a man cries in public, he's passionate about something. I mean, and I've raised two sons and they're at a disadvantage too because they, you know, they have limits on how they can express their emotions. So we still have a cultural issue that no single institution or training program is going to fix. And how how do you think theater-based training might be more effective than, say, a PowerPoint? Well, like they say in theater, show people, don't tell them. Yes. And <laughs> um, first of all, you can get away with humor in characters that you're not going to get up in front of an audience and crack jokes about sexual harassment. But you can do some in, in, in not about the issue, but peripherally in the scene. Uh, we had a scene in the last show where one of the actors talked about having, we didn't show the assault, but she talked about having been assaulted. And it was a real common, you know, they were friends, they had made out, she didn't want more, he did, there was alcohol involved. It was, that's a really typical college assault scenario. Mm-hmm. And she just talked about how much it had affected her studies and there were people weeping in the audience. Wow. Because I had a, I'm very lucky. I found some wonderful actors to work with and they're coming back for me. And it was really compelling. And she, she didn't go into details, but just seeing how much it affected her was a lot more, I think, reached the audience in a way that even a really good speaker saying this has a huge effect on people wouldn't have. And so I, I mean, I, I, totally believe in live theater and the ability to, you know, I don't know how much I change people's minds with my comedy songs, but at least I know I'm reaching people. And I think, you know, I think using theater-based training for a lot of things is more effective than just talking at them. 
Now, you, you mentioned you've been a freelancer your whole adult life. Yep. Um, how does that play out? I, I feel like, I was telling somebody, I feel like the Madonna of the bear, not in terms of my talent or anything, but she keeps reinventing herself. Mm. That's kind of, you know, f- when I first got here, I was playing piano. Everybody had a piano. There was piano in shoe stores. So I was playing background piano and then playing for cabaret singers. I always tell people I, I lived in New York after college, and then I moved here to meet straight men. <laughs> but I did. I wasn't dating in New York, and I moved here, and and I might have did met that work. Only, yeah, I met two of them. Oh, th- yeah. there are two of them. Yeah, I met them both. <laughs> I married them both, not simultaneously. Um, but I did that for a while, and then the cabaret scene kind of. There used to be a thing called the Council on Entertainment. They had these big award shows. There were a lot of piano bars. Um, as far as I know, I was the only woman. All the other piano, and like I'd have to tell people, I'm really not a drag queen. I'm, I'm female. I really am because oh all the other pianists were drag queens. <laughs> and then that whole scene with the AIDS epidemic, a lot of those clubs closed. So then I kind of reinvented myself doing corporate theater. And I did, you know, I mean, big events for Hewlett Packard and Wells Fargo. And I did a convention of funeral directors where I was a tap dancing casket. Oh, my I mean, goodness. we did all, they were, they, <laughs> That, that was the rowdiest group. I had a, a partner doing it for a long time. That was the rowdiest group we ever performed for. They this needs so to fun. be a, a musical. I yes. guess I guess Fun Home has already kind of about it. Yeah, funeral milked home. the funeral home But it was thing, more but... about how fun, like they really let their hair down. <laughs> so I, And I actually did pretty well with that. And then 9-11 hit and companies also were transitioning to more video conferencing. They weren't doing as many of these big meetings. So I kind of reinvented myself as a vocal coach. So does it get, is it hard though to like let go of your old self and like form a new one? Like I, I imagine myself being like, no, I made this thing work. I want to hold on to this thing. Yeah, I did. But on the other hand, they weren't, nobody was booking them yeah. anymore. So it wasn't like I have to let go of this. It's, it's gone. They took yeah. it. They and took it. it also kind of went with phases in my life. I did the cabaret thing uh, until I got married and then we moved to the suburbs, and the cabaret thing wasn't happening anymore, so I was doing corporate stuff. Yeah. And then that worked until I got divorced not too long before 9-11. I was a single mom. I couldn't travel to do the corporate stuff anyway. So I the vocal coaching was great because I could do it after school and during, you know, when my, and even if my kids were home and I'd have, like, a mother's helper, I didn't need child care because I was home. Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. there was an emergency, I could leave a voice lesson. So... I did that, and then as my kids got older, and I, the, the only thing I sort of initiated was starting to do the political comedy because I was frustrated. Because when the cabaret scene was going, I was performing a lot, and I was performing a lot with the corporate stuff. But I wasn't performing as a vocal coach, oh, and I yeah, missed it. Yeah. And then started doing the videos and then missed performing live, and so I've started doing that just in the past year. So I just it's sort of like, you know, Life changes, the phases of your life change. It's like seasons. Now, the show you've got coming up most immediately is at Feinstein's at the Nico. Yes, which is just beyond thrilling because they almost never book locals. Oh, well, congratulations. Thank you. So, and you're performing with? Sandy and Richard Riccardi are another duo who have a much bigger following than I do (laughs) with the political stuff. But they're great. And we just connected. We People had told us we should meet, and I knew Richard just because pianists all know each other, even if we never play together. We have each other's <laughs> names on sublists, 
and it was like meeting my long lost best friend. So oh my gosh. we love performing together. So um, actually, Feinstein's called me because they wanted to do something political the week of the midterms. Oh, that makes sense. And I said, I would like, can I invite other performers? Because I don't know if I could fill the room by myself, but I also love performing with them and it makes it a good show. So they've had me on a couple of their shows. I've invited them to some of mine. So we're doing it together. Can we hear a little bit about the set list or is that top secret until the show? Well, it's not top secret till the show. It's to be determined <laughs> until the show because we both have two set lists. If we, well, I have three because I did a song about Beto O'Rourke, the guy running against yeah, Ted Cruz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love him and it's just, you know, the, the Cruz campaign is just keeps shooting itself in the foot. So I made fun of him. I don't, I'm trying to be more positive, but he's just too easy to make fun of. So if he wins, I'll put that song in. If we don't win either, the, if, the, if the Democrats don't get one house, it'll be more of a commiseration set. If yeah. we win at least one house, I'll do more celebrations. So I have to, I'll do, um, I'll do the sexual harassment song. Great. Um, I'll do the song I just put out, which is not political. I refer to myself a lot as a Jewish mother, but I am. Called Just Another Middle-Aged Jewish Mother with a Crush on Steph Curry. <laughs> just about, like, I don't know anything about basketball, but he's cute, and he's a nice guy, and his kids are adorable, and he hit that crazy backwards shot. Did you see that footage? He was says a practice game, and he's in the middle of the court, and the thing's behind him, and he just goes, whoop, and it made the basket. That's not humanly possible. <laughs> you so, know, he, he's, he's magical. He is. And I'm old enough to be his mother easily, <laughs> and it doesn't matter. Somebody was saying once, I remember this, when Ricky Martin came out of the closet. I don't know if you remember that. And all these women were saying, oh, no, he's gay. And it's like, he's not going out with you whether, you're, whether he's gay or straight, so why does it matter? And I sort of feel like that of Steph Curry. It doesn't matter if he's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm way too old for him and he's happily married. He doesn't know who I am, so I can have a crush on him. What's the harm in that? Exactly. And that's the second time I've said this in the podcast, and I hope it's not the last. Of course. Um, so your whole family are musicians. Musicians and in the arts, yeah. So are, are you guys at home just like throwing artwork everywhere and bursting into song. Is that what it's like? No, not really. When my kids were little, we did a lot of singing in the house, and my husband was in their lives because they were young when I got divorced, and they were 8 and 11 when we got married, but he was around before that. So we would sing, but silly stuff. I had a tape that my dad had made for my kids that was Fats Waller. Yes. And there's, you know, like, Your Feet's my, Too Big. Your Feet's Too Big. Yes. I love that song. And so it's I would, so funny. So the kids know that. They know all the words to the Smothers Brothers Ballad of John Henry. Oh. Which is, you know, all like right. 11 minutes long. We would listen to it in the car, and they still know that. So it was not quite your, you know, Von Trapp family singers <laughs> kind of thing. And then we've done a little bit together. My husband and I do a cabaret act together. Right. And you said you had just uh, booked a night in February. Yeah, we confirmed it. We actually had booked it a little while ago. Yeah, February 16th at Society Cabaret in San Francisco. So my husband and I have performed together off and on. And uh, he used to be a full-time singer and actor. Now he's a substance abuse counselor, but he sings at church and with a band. And then my older son is a musical theater performer, singer, dancer, and he um, lives in New York now. 
and he and I were in a couple of shows together when he was in middle school and high school. Oh, where at? Uh, at Bay Area um, Educational Ch- um, Theater Company. It's like a children's theater company. And then Woodminster Summer Musicals. Nice. We wow. were in one show where he was the youngest tap dancer and I was the oldest. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but he's a really good dancer. I'm not at all a good enough dancer to be in shows with him now. <laughs> he's well, a professional. What, what's his name so we can all follow him? David Vicini. Great. And he's uh, performing at... Uh, the Palace Theater in Manchester, New Hampshire right now, and he lives in New York. And then my younger son, Ben Vicini, is at Chapman University. He's a percussionist, and he does comedy music. And I got the biggest kick in... He's done some drum work for me, but he, before he went down to school, they, he had a set at the open mic at Hotel Utah. I don't know if you're familiar with that. They've, Definitely. Like, yeah. So he had a set, and he asked me to do a number in his set. So I got to be a guest on my son's show. Well, he just scored some major mom points. Whoa. Oh, except, like I said, it probably says something about our relationship that the song of mine he picked, which he both liked and thought his friends would enjoy, is a song about married couples trying to get it on. It's called Getting Lucky Tonight, <laughs> and it's about the challenges of having a love life when you've got small kids in the house. Wow. Oh, okay, so maybe... Um, Fewer My, mom points. No, I think I love I love that we have that kind of relationship. <laughs> I mean, I used to do a comedy show. I still do it occasionally, a comedy show about being a mom. And, you know, it's my mom's songs plus some pattern. I do a whole bit about kind of an embellished but mostly true story about teaching my kids about the facts of life. Oh, wow. And I did it when they were in the audience talking about them. Oh, my gosh. With their friends. Oh, no. They knew what it was, and they they watched it. So they're probably warped for life. Uh, But in the best of ways. In the best of ways. And so the the show in February with your husband, that's called Yes, Dear. Yes, it's based on, it's a musical look, a cabaret look at marriage. And I've written some songs for us, and he's awesome. He's got a great voice, and he's funny. So and uh, before we started recording, you described yourselves as the only act in which the wife is the pianist. And well, usually the cabaret couples like and again, I'm dating myself like Louis Prima and Keely Smith. Right. Or right. Billy Philadelphia and Meg McKay, who are locals. The pianist is the guy. He's kind of wisecracking and he does the backups. And then it's the the beautiful girl singer. Well, I'm the wisecracking pianist and he's the beautiful guy. singer. So. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And so far, I'm sure there was some act like that way back. We can't find any. You know, all the duos back in the 40s and 50s had a guy at the piano or leading the band. There was Paul Weston and Joe Stafford. There were all sorts of, you know, female singers who had male pianists. We can't find a male pianist who had a female, a male singer who had a female pianist. Well, I don't even think women could figure out how to play the piano until like, what, 60 years ago, right? Yeah, Our right. brains just hadn't evolved No, we, yeah, it was too hard for our brains. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we, we are covering your, your whirlwind career here oh, in a God. whirlwind fashion. Yes. But one of the... Fu- final things you're involved with right now is the conservatory of music. Yeah. And again, this was one of those things I had, I I feel like on the one hand, it's been a rough career. On the other hand, I'm the luckiest person in the world. Um, in 2014, we got evicted from the house we'd been renting for 10 years because prices went up and all of a sudden, basically I had to double the amount of money I was making. 
And that month, somebody dropped out of a job at the conservatory, which had started about a year before that. They started maybe a while ago. They had started a program to teach opera singers how to do musical theater, both in terms of making them better actors in operas and also to broaden their work options. Oh, wow. Because a lot of opera companies do musical theater and a lot of opera singers go to theater companies. And one of the music directors moved and they were looking for somebody. And the director happened to sing in the church choir where my husband is the cantor. And he mentioned to Scott, do you know any music directors? He said, you know, Lauren music directs. And he sort of knew that but didn't, and I got the job, and I've been doing that. So it's not full-time. I'm on the part-time faculty, but for the, every fall, I've been working there putting on – and we're, we're, so we do a musical. They do two a year. I do one of them, and the other music director does the other one. And um, we're doing Three Penny Opera in December, so I'm in rehearsals for that right now. And – they are amazing. They're, the voices are so good, but they're also, because this program is built well and the director is wonderful, and his name is Michael Muhammad. I'll do a shout-out to him. He's my favorite director to work with because he treats me like a colleague. And then I hired ah. him for my Stanford thing because he's also a wonderful actor. So it's been great. And that saved our bacon because I was going to have to, I don't know how, I, what, how many students can I make come out of thin air Right. And so I got that job and I have loved it. Hmm. Now, so. for our listeners who are maybe a little bit farther outside the, I don't know, the musical theater world, what does music directing entail? It depends on the theater company. But with a show like this, it involves generally rehearsing, uh, kind of like working like a rehearsal pianist. So when you're, you teach the music to the singers, and again, it depends. I've music directed in schools where nobody reads music and you have to teach them note by note or oh, at a conservatory the they come in kind of knowing it but maybe like with the opera singers they need a little help with how to phrase it because it's a little different than opera so you teach the vocals often play rehearsal piano not always but you know as the director's working things out or as the choreographer's teaching the steps you play it and then generally you're in charge of whatever accompaniment there is sometimes I conduct not as often I usually play the piano if I'm music directing and then like for this one, I have a five-piece orchestra, and I'll deal with the musicians and teach them. You know, the parts are written, but rehearse with them and then play the shows. Right on. And if I'm working with a director who I'm, you know, sometimes the director wants to do their own thing, and then I'm just the rehearsal pianist. I don't like to do that as much because I've done it, and there are other people who can. But when I get to be part of the creative process, it's really fun. Cool, cool. So that's what a music director does. So, and now, just to review the Lauren calendar for coming up, oh we've gosh. got the Feinstein Show, November 8th. We've got the Three Penny Opera. That's it's December 6th and 7th at the Conservatory of Music. And because it's a recital program, it's free to the public. Free, this, everybody. And this is like, come see the stars of tomorrow, because at least a handful of people in these productions will go on to... I mean, they're all talented. It's just, you know, the odds are stacked against them, but they're all phenomenal. So I know some of them will end up being famous. They're really good. Well, the last person I interviewed for an Artist's Life podcast was famous enough uh, to come to the Chronicle, and he was a conservatory alum, and that is Nathan Markin. 
Oh, yeah. I've yeah. heard the name. I don't know him personally. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, well, so that's me and Nathan. Yeah. That's well, he was he was the star of tomorrow and now he's the star of today. Wow. <laughs> well, I've been a star of tomorrow for a long I did a song actually because I had a song of mine that got tweeted out by Jill Winebanks. If you know who she is, she's a commentator on MSNBC. Oh, okay. She was the only woman involved in the Watergate prosecution team. So she's like historical and fascinating. And she tweeted out one of my songs. So I wrote a song called Overnight Success after 38 years. <laughs> That's because, so good. And I'm like still, maybe I'll be, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lauren, thank you for coming into the Chronicle today. Well, thank you for having me. This has been so fun. And this definitely makes me feel like an overnight star. This show is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Stephen Boyle. This show is produced by me. For more theater coverage, you can follow me on Twitter at Lily Janik. Check out all of our coverage at sfchronicle.com.